Last wills and testaments can be important ways for people to express their final wishes and statements to family and friends. I came across some examples of some interesting last wills and testaments in a Forbes magazine article. For example, the comedian Jack Benny, he died in 1974, and he paid a florist to send a single long-stemmed rose every day to his wife after he died. And so for nine years, his wife received a single-stemmed rose until she passed. Gene Roddenberry, you know him as the creator of Star Trek, the inventor of the notable quote, to boldly go where no man has gone before, Well, he made certain to maintain that statement long after his passing. In his last will and testament, he included instructions to have his ashes scattered via a space satellite orbiting Earth. And that act was carried out in 1997. But this one is probably the most strange of all. John Bowman, he died in 1891. He believed that his wife and two daughters who had already died would be reincarnated with him. And so basically the entire family would come back together to live in their house. Well, he kept a large trust fund to ensure that fresh meals were cooked every day in his house. And so there was a tremendous waste of money and food as a result of that because, of course, they never returned to that house. Here's an excellent one, though. Uh, It's a personal one. My wife's stepfather, Mort Weiss, he died a few years ago, and he included in his last will and testament the reading of his own testimony of how God saved him by grace and a full presentation of the gospel. Now that's a good use of a last testament. Well, today we are beginning a new sermon series in Paul's epistle of 2 Timothy, and we're calling it Guarding the Gospel Gift in a Godless World. And the reason that I started talking about last wills and testaments is that this epistle has been said to be Paul's last will and testament because it was his last letter written before he was martyred. All Paul had left was more more than likely just the clothes on his back. And he mentions in this letter asking Tim, Timothy and, or Mark to bring him a cloak that was left behind and some writing instruments and some Old Testament parchments of the Bible. That's all he probably left behind. But really what he left behind was a tremendous legacy. Think of Paul's ministry, the people that were led to Christ, the, the churches that were started, how he poured his life into people like young Timothy. And think of how God inspired him to write his word and the immense value that has had for the church of generations to come. Second Timothy was written by Paul as he was imprisoned in a Roman cell. Many think it was the Mamertine prison in Rome, which consisted of underground cells. And the only light and air that came into those cells were a small opening in the uh, roof and he was awaiting his sentence and he knew it was going to be a sentence of death and after that would come 
that sentence that is, he would be taken somewhere on the Appian Way as most Roman citizens were killed in those days for a crime by being beheaded. And many of his allies, many of his friends had deserted him. Some had betrayed him. He was old and alone, but not really alone. The Lord was with him. Now, the letter of 1 Timothy is a kind of a church manual for Timothy as he is a pastor of the church in Ephesus, how the church is to be organized, how people ought to conduct themselves, and it was also written to encourage Timothy and how he ought to deal with false teachers and uphold sound doctrine. But 2 Timothy is different. 2 Timothy is a very personal book focused on charging Timothy to persevere in the ministry and in the proclamation of the gospel. This is sort of Paul's last charge to his entrusted lieutenant. And he was to carry on in the footsteps of Paul, fanning into flame the gift of God, guarding the good deposit of the gospel. And in this letter we find Paul being tender and fatherly toward his spiritual son. You know, Timothy met Paul during his first missionary journey. And then he accompanied him on many missionary trips to evangelize, to establish churches. He was Paul's closest disciple. And he was often a delegate that Paul would send in his place to visit various churches and individuals. Timothy helped him in writing five of Paul's epistles. And of course, he was left to pastor the church in Ephesus as Paul continued on in his ministries. So what God tells us in this letter, I believe, is important for us today because some of the same challenges that Timothy faced, we face today in the church. So let's begin by looking at the first five verses of 2 Timothy chapter 1. This is the word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day, as I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. That ends the reading of God's Word. Well, we're going to see in Paul's introductory remarks here how he affirms his own apostleship, and then he immediately transitions to encourage Timothy with blessings and with gratitude and with prayer. And from this, I believe we're going to learn what Jesus does in the heart of a believer and how his gospel transforms Christians to be people of gratitude, even in the midst of trials, to be people of encouragement even in the midst of great difficulties. Well, the first thing that we're going to see in our text is an emphasis on Paul's apostleship. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. 
Now, if you're familiar with Paul's writings, you know that there were many who questioned his apostleship. And so he mentions in five of his letters, the very beginning, how he's called as an apostle. Paul is convinced of this. He's convinced of this because Jesus himself, the resurrected Christ, met him on the road to Damascus and converted him and commissioned him to be an apostle. And so we see here the origin of his apostleship was by the will of God. Paul was confident in the will of God, not just in his calling, but he was confident in the will of God leading him throughout his ministry in various ways to various people and and towns, promoting, presenting, proclaiming the gospel, planting churches. He knew God's will was sovereign and it was good for him. And he knew God's will was for him to be in this prison at this point and and for him to soon face death. And Paul adds that the will of God is according to point B, the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. Not only did he know the will of God, but he knew the main purpose that God had called him and that was to proclaim the life that was in Jesus Christ, eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. You see, even as Paul is facing imminent death, he rivets his attention on the promise of eternal life, on fellowship with God forever. In other words, in this first section, Paul is drawing his confidence in the midst of his trials, in the midst of facing death with the knowledge of God's will, his providence, and the hope of this ongoing spiritual life that he has with Christ that will last for all eternity. Well, secondly, we see Paul's blessing of Timothy. Look at verse 2. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. First here we see he blesses Timothy by calling him my beloved child. Now, how was Timothy Paul's beloved child? Well, Paul was used by God to disciple Timothy, to mentor him, to bring him along in his spiritual journey. Maybe you can remember someone in your life who either brought you to faith in Christ or who spent a lot of time, maybe years, discipling you, encouraging you in your walk with Christ. He or she was with you through your ups and downs spiritually and prayed for you. Well, this is the kind of relationship that Paul had with Timothy, an unusually close discipleship relationship. But you see, these kinds of relationships ought to be found in the local church to varying degrees. We are a household of faith. We have spiritual mothers and fathers. We have spiritual brothers and sisters. And what a joy it is for us to experience that kind of spiritual family in fellowship with one another. But I would have to say that sadly, many don't give the time to nurture those kind of relationships in the local church. And I believe they're missing out. What a blessing it must have been for Peter and for all the other apostles to know this kind of discipleship, either by discipling others or being discipled. Of course, all 
the disciples of Christ, knew what it was like to be a disciple of him personally when he was on this earth. But here, Paul calls Timothy his spiritual son. But then Paul leaves Timothy with a triple blessing, a triple blessing of a promise and a prayer. He says, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. These three words are so precious. Grace, what does that mean? God's unmerited favor, his unmerited, undeserved pardon. The source of our salvation is God's grace, not anything that we do. And then, of course, his mercy. Another word for mercy is pity or compassion. He has loving compassion on us because he knows that we are helpless. We cannot save ourselves. We are in a desperate situation, lost, without God. And yet, in his mercy, he comes to us and he changes our hearts and gives us faith and repentance. And the result of that grace and mercy is peace, peace with God. Peace knowing that we've been reconciled to him. Peace in knowing that all of our sin debts have been paid and forgiven Peace in knowing that God will never forsake us, that he's with us, that he's going to provide for us, that he's going to protect us. Peace in knowing that all things that happen to us are for our good and for his glory. So grace, mercy, and peace are gifts from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, the Father is the one who originates And gives us this grace. The Son is the one who has earned us this grace, mercy, and peace. The Holy Spirit is the one who bestows it upon us. We need grace, mercy, and peace. We cannot be saved without grace, mercy, and peace. We cannot gain these spiritual blessings through our own efforts. Because we are sinners. The Bible tells us we're lost. We're separated from God because of our sinful nature that we've inherited from the first man, Adam. We were born into this world at enmity with God, in rebellion against God. We fall short of his commandments, and yet God is holy and tells us we have to be perfect. We have to be perfectly righteous, and we fall short. We're also told that God is a just God, that he must punish every sin and we amass this great debt of sin throughout our lives apart from Christ that we cannot atone for but God in his grace and in his mercy determined to enter into a covenant of grace with his people to provide what we could not accomplish ourselves for our salvation he came to provide us with righteousness perfect righteousness And he came to provide atonement for all of our sins. And of course he did this through the personal work of Christ. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, came to this world becoming a man, taking on human nature and yet without sin, but also remaining God in order to be our substitute. He came to live the life that we could not live. He came to live in pure righteousness fulfilling all the commandments for us so that those who believe in him would receive his perfect record to their account. But he also came to go to the cross, the perfect lamb of God, the innocent 
Lamb of God went to the cross to receive the debt of all of the sins he came to die for and he received the judgment that we deserve. He received the equivalent of hell for all his people. He did that through his suffering, his bleeding, and his dying. This grace, mercy, and peace came at no cost to us, but at great cost to Christ. And then on the third day, he rose from the dead, proving he was God the Son, the Messiah, that he had victory for his people over sin and death and the devil, and the Father had approved his work for our salvation. And so now all who are born again, who receive new hearts that turn from their sin and trust in who Jesus is and what he did for their salvation, they are declared righteous before God, clothed in his righteousness, and they are forgiven of all of their sins that they've committed throughout their lifetime, and they're adopted into God's family. They're brought into union and fellowship with God, and they receive the gift of eternal life. You see, Paul knows that Timothy needs to be reminded of this grace and mercy and peace that he has through God the Father and Jesus Christ. Because even Paul, as encouraging as he was to Timothy, was not enough for Timothy. And nobody in our lives is enough. We need Jesus. We need his grace. We need his mercy. We need his peace. Well, after Paul's affirmation of his calling and this threefold prayer of blessing for Timothy, we see thirdly, point number three, Paul's gratitude being expressed. This is so profound, what's going on here in this text. Instead of Paul fixating on his circumstances, think of it, he's in a dirty dungeon, he's going to die, he knows he's going to be beheaded, perhaps months after he writes this letter. And yet, instead of turning on himself and saying, woe is me, look at all my problems, look at all my troubles, I'm awaiting execution, have pity on me. No, he says at the beginning of verse 3, I thank God. Let that sink in. He's not turned in on himself. He is centered on God. And then he becomes other-centered. He thanks God, and then he thinks about Timothy's situation and thanks the Lord for Timothy. You see, only those people who are truly born again and who are walking by faith, abiding in Christ and their union with Christ, can have a sincere capacity to be grateful to God and to be selfless and think of others in the midst of great persecution or great trials or great suffering. That's what the gospel does. That's what Jesus does in the heart of a believer. Because a believer has wholeness in Christ. Fullness in Christ. So we can express grace and mercy and peace to others even when we're going through difficult times. Let's look at what Paul is thankful for. First, he is thankful, point A, for serving with a clear conscience. He says, I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience. He's looking back on his life and he sees how 
the Lord has caused him to follow the Lord and serve the Lord as an apostle. And he says, I have a clear conscience. And he links his service with those in the Old Testament who are Old Testament believers. And in essence, he's saying the people in the Old Testament and the people in the New Testament are saved the same way. Those in the Old Testament who are believers looked ahead and trusted in God's covenant promise of how he was going to provide a Messiah to provide the forgiveness of their sins and salvation. Well, in the New Testament, people are just looking back to how God has provided that already in the coming of his son in his life, death, and resurrection and ascension. But what is a clear conscience? Does this mean that Paul was sinless? No. There were many times Paul was convicted of his own sin and continually repented of sin and believed in what Christ did to accomplish his salvation through his life, death, and resurrection. But before Paul became a Christian, his conscience accused him of sin and guilt. And there was no relief from it because he knew deep down in his heart he could not satisfy God's demands. He could not atone for his sins. But when he became a Christian, his conscience was satisfied. He was sanctified by the word of God and by the gospel And this is true of all Christians. When we become Christians, our conscience is clean. It's cleansed. And when we sin, we repent and we continually look in faith to what Christ accomplished for us on the cross and our conscience is is continually being cleansed and, and cleared. Paul means that He lived with this clean conscience as he looked back on his life. There was no weight of unresolved sins because he led a life of repentance and faith. And then it's with this sincere conscience that Paul is also thankful in his point B, remembering prayer. Look at what it says in the second half of verse 3. As I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. Again, we see his selflessness. He's not spending most of his time praying for his own needs, but sincerely for Timothy's needs. He's constantly remembering him day and night. Paul had a lot of time on his hands being in a Roman prison, but he was using that time fruitfully in prayer. prayer his prayer was laced throughout his life with continual prayer. He's really living according to his inspired command that we studied a few weeks ago in Ephesians 6, 18. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. And these remembering prayers of Paul for Timothy were accompanied by his longing for him. Look at verse four. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. You know, sometimes we get this image of the Apostle Paul that he was a cold and hard individual, but nothing could be further from the truth. We look at all the people that he knew and the affection that he had for people, and they for him. I think of when he said goodbye to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. All of them were shedding tears together because they knew it would be the last time they'd see one another. Well, here Paul is probably recalling the last time that he saw Timothy. 
and the genuine devotion in this young man for his spiritual father. And like a father, he's remembering that tearful goodbye of his son. And he longed to comfort him. He longed to encourage him and have the joy of seeing him once again. Timothy was not like Paul. He was still young and inexperienced. In 1 Timothy, Paul tells him not to let anyone look down on his youth. And later in this epistle, Timothy is told to flee the evil desires of youth. So he's still a young man. And he had a weak constitution. He had frequent ailments. He had a weak stomach. Who knows, maybe from the stress of ministry. Maybe from some chronic illness that he had. And he was also timid by nature. Some might call him, by today's standards, an introvert. Now, you'd be surprised how many pastors and people in ministry are introverts, how they dread the limelight. I find it interesting that in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 10 through 11, Paul is writing to the Corinthian church, and he says, he says this, if Timothy comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he is with you. No one should refuse to accept him. Perhaps that's a little bit of an insight as to some of the fears and anxieties that Timothy had when he would go to new places to visit people. But on the other hand, Paul was constitutionally a tough man. He was not shy like Timothy. And yet, this oil and water, they attracted to one another. Paul loved Timothy as a spiritual son. Another part of this deep yearning, point D, Timothy's sincere faith and foundation. He writes in the first half of verse 5, I'm reminded of your sincere faith. Can you imagine the Apostle Paul telling you, I'm reminded of your sincere faith. What an encouragement that must have been for Timothy. Because I'm sure there were times when Timothy doubted the sincerity of his faith. There were times in his timid disposition and the troubles that were going on in the church that he just wanted to quit. He just wanted to give up. He, he wondered if he really did have a sincere faith and love for Christ. This is what Satan is always doing. He's always trying to attack us. He's always trying to get us to doubt the sincerity of our faith, especially after we sinned, especially in the midst of great trials. But what an encouragement to hear from an older saint and a more mature believer to tell you, your faith is sincere. I believe in you. I believe God has a hold of you. He's going to continue to work in you. He's going to continue to perfect you. He's going to continue to make you effective in ministry. You know, if you remember, Paul just stated that his own faith and sincere conscience was in continuity with his forefathers in the Old Testament of faith. Well, now he's telling Timothy that his sincere faith is in continuity with those who led him to faith, his mother and grandmother. Paul met Eunice and Lois in Acts chapter 16, verse 1. He meets these two women on his trip through Derby and Lystra. 
as he was delivering a letter to the churches after the council got together in Jerusalem of all the surrounding presbyteries. The elders came together, they debated, and they made a decision, and they passed down their decision to the local churches. And so Paul was sending this letter, or delivering this letter to the local churches. And that letter was that they were to not demand or require Gentiles to be circumcised. Well, as he went through Lystra, he met Timothy, and he met Lois and Eunice. And Timothy was a young believer and wanted to go with Paul on his missionary journeys. And so, thus began this ministry partnership and this discipleship relationship. Well, so what? That's great information, Pastor, but what do I do with these truths? Why are they important? What does God want to apply to my life daily that will make an impact on the way I think and live. Well, first of all, Paul took great assurance in being called as an apostle. Remember he said, by the will of God. And of course, apostles aren't around anymore. They were just for that first century as God was building the foundation of the local church. But all believers have a sense of calling. God has called us to be disciples of Christ. And all believers have the blessings that were pronounced upon Timothy of grace, of mercy, and of peace. And so I ask you this first question. Do you know this threefold blessing of life that is in Christ? Have you experienced the grace of God? Do you know that your sins have been pardoned and that you've been declared righteous before God, not because of anything that you've done, but purely because of God's grace? Have you been a recipient of his mercy, of his pity, of his compassion? And do you continually know that he's compassionate toward you and he's going to meet all of your needs? Do you have the deep peace of knowing your sins are forgiven? of knowing Christ lives in you, of knowing the assurance that you're going to be with Christ in heaven forever, that he will protect and provide for you. If you're not assured of these threefold blessings that a Christian enjoys, then I ask you to pray and ask the Lord to make sure that you are a believer and to give you faith and repentance in Christ and a relationship with him. Paul wanted Timothy to know that even though he was timid, even though he was introverted, that God would help him to overcome his weaknesses and enable him to fulfill the calling that he had had for him. You know, God often calls us to do something far beyond our natural abilities, far beyond our natural endowments. But what he calls us to, he will equip us to do. He will enable us to do through his life in us, through his grace, mercy, and peace. Are you going through a trial right now? Are you tempted to think, woe is me. Nobody understands my problems. I have big problems. And you begin to pity yourself and and you just want other people to, to pity you as well. That's how the world lives. But we're called to be countercultural. Look at the example of Paul. He's in this awful dungeon alone. He's awaiting execution. And yet he has this supernatural power 
to focus on God and to focus on others. How is that possible? Well, here's my second application question with an answer. What will help you be a person of gratitude and focus on the needs of others, even in the face of great trials? Well, you know what? You can't do it. You don't have the resources to do it in and of yourself. It's only found as you live and abide in Christ. It's only found in your union with Christ. You see, Paul knew that Jesus was with him in the dungeon. He knew the promises of the gospel. He trusted in God's good providence for him. He knew what awaited him in heaven. Life forever with Christ. And so he relied upon his wholeness in Christ, the promises of Christ. He recalled those things to himself And all of that enabled him to write his last will and testament, focusing on glorifying Christ and building up his beloved spiritual son. So I ask you, what kind of last will and testament are people reading in you by the way that you talk and the way that you live? Are you determined with God's help to leave the next generation the witness of a life of gratitude to God and building others up? Or do people see you primarily as a complainer, as some who just talks about your problems or talks about others' problems all the time? You see, that won't be true of you if you're continuing to grow in Christ because Christ is changing us and transforming us. And as we claim his promises, his grace, his mercy, and peace, we will be like Paul to Timothy. We will selflessly pray for and invest our time to build up others in the faith. Finally, we're to see in our text the power of God's covenant promises to his children. God is often pleased to bring his children into his kingdom through believing households, even when they're not perfect. And none of them are perfect. Timothy didn't have a believing father, but by God's grace, he had a believing grandmother and mother. The word of God did not return without carrying out what he had appointed in Timothy's heart through his mother and grandmother. And so my encouragement to you is point number three, don't underestimate the power of godly parenting and grandparenting. Keep teaching and living out the gospel to your children and to your grandchildren with a heart of gratitude. Show them that Christ is enough in the midst of your trials. Tell them about the grace and mercy and peace of knowing Christ. God will use you and the body of Christ to provide this important witness to nurture the children of of the household of faith. Maybe you don't have children. But you know what? You do have children. What do I mean? You have children within the church. We don't know if Paul ever had children. Timothy did not have a Christian dad, so Paul became Timothy's spiritual father. See, God expects this to happen in the church as well. If you are a mature Christian, are you willing to be a mentor to a younger believer? If you're a younger believer, and you don't have a mentor, look for one in the church. Decide to dedicate 
your time to building friendships with older, more mature believers. That is the beauty of being in a multi-generational church like ours. What if you're not able to get out much because of some physical limitations? Well, look at Paul. He discipled by letters and prayers when he couldn't be mentoring people in person. And surely we can pray. We can encourage others through emails, through notes, and phone calls. So as we begin this series, may the Lord through his grace and gifts enable us in the midst of our own trials to glorify him, to give him thanks, and to have the will and capacity to pour our lives into others like Paul did with Timothy. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for the beginning of this exciting book, this last will and testament of Paul to Timothy. Lord, help us to learn all we can from it. We thank you for the life of Paul Thank you that through repentance and faith he lived with a clear conscience and he was also able to have a heart of gratitude in the midst of such depressing surroundings and, and, and temporal future. Lord, give us that kind of attitude and faith that he had to be people of gratitude and to look to build up others even in the midst of our own trials. And we know that you will do that, Lord because that's the kind of life you lived here on this earth. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.